1944, Pablo Picasso said, one must have the courage of one's vocation and the courage to make a living from one's vocation. In this podcast, we talk to artists, authors, and entrepreneurs about the steps they took to find the very courage Picasso was talking about. This isn't another podcast of type A people talking to other type A people about how great it is to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. It's a podcast where I, in my radio voice, talk to relatively normal people about stuff that other relatively normal people might care about. I'm Dallas Browning, and you're listening to The Art of Vocation. In this episode of The Art of Vocation, we talk with Pat Crowley, founder and CEO of Chapool Cricket Protein Bars. That's right, crickets. Pat has a fascinating story in personal philosophy. During our conversation, he goes into detail about how he got the idea to start selling bug bars and his motivation behind it. He also discusses how he prepared for a successful Kickstarter campaign and touches upon his experience on Shark Tank. From teaching surfing in Panama to making deals with Mark Cuban, you'll love hearing Pat share how he pursues his purpose by investing in his vocation. Hello, I'm here with Pat Crowley. Hi, welcome to Art of Vocation, Pat. Thanks, Dallas. Pretty excited to be here. <laughs> really excited to have you here. Um, Pat is the founder and CEO of Chapool Cricket Bars. Yep. Is, is that the right way to say it? Totally, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we, we're actually in the midst of new product launches, but w- for the time being, we're Chapool Cricket Bars. Just, Do you want to talk about the new product launches? Sure, yeah. Let's hear it. Yeah, so we just launched uh, a protein powder with our crickets that we just milled down to a, a fine protein powder. I was going to ask yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, okay. So so you can now, so with the protein powder, you could add that to what, shakes or? Exactly, yeah. It's still kind of a coarse grind, uh, so it's more like, like flaxseed meal, if mm-hmm. you've ever added that to a, a smoothie or a shake, it's, it has about that same consistency. So it's not water soluble yet. So it's not going to be like That's an fine. energy drink for give us give us six months. Can I add it to like <laughs> cookies if I'm exactly want yeah. a little add a little protein? Yeah, so anything exactly. that I'm adding protein to currently, I could I could use this exactly. Yes, yeah, substitute it for whey protein or or soy protein isolate that you're using. And aren't crickets better for you than? say the soy protein isolate yeah exactly especially for especially for males that are you know uh, not super excited about getting all the phytoestrogen from soy so um yeah it's a, it's a very digestible protein as well so you know per pound for pound you're going to get a lot more uptake from that protein out of cricket protein than than soy protein really heavily processed proteins like right. soy or whey okay awesome yeah all right so let's 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 go back uh let's go back a few years yeah okay um so let's let's go back to say i don't know tell us a little bit about your life you know where did you grow up um did you go to college what did your 20s look like yeah um i okay so i i grew up in arizona uh to parents that were uh, peace corps volunteers world travelers um focused more on kind of experience over material goods. So I kind of had that upbringing oh, cool. from the get go. We would drive our 
little tent trailer down in Mexico and camp on the beach for a week down there and, <laughs> you know, crash on family's couches when we would travel across the country. And so now, did you, as a kid, were you like, oh, mom, dad, this is dumb. Why can't I just stay at home and play Nintendo like the other kids? Yeah, I did. And I, I'm grateful for their resistance to that, <laughs> you know, because you, you go to school and everyone's got video games and, you know, they're watching TV and stuff. And so you can't yeah. relate. But, um, yeah, I credit them for, for resisting because awesome. I'm, I'm pretty happy with not having that. I remember my dad growing up would would uh, compare things. You know, I said, oh, look at this TV, Dad. We You know, we could use a TV at home. And he said, well, we could get that TV or that could be five lift tickets for going skiing. <laughs> so, oh, okay, all right, we know. <laughs> awesome. That's really cool. So yeah. you grew up really active then, yeah. skiing, yeah, traveling. Yeah. Yep, camping all the time. Yep. Awesome. So, yeah, I, I did go to college, went to college in Southern California for swimming. That was kind of my main focus. I was a swimmer through college. Um, but I studied abroad my junior year, and I think that was really, you know, it, it traveled a bit as a kid, but that's really where it kind of I get that bug for wanting to see the world and experience new cultures. And so I spent a year in Spain. Okay. But while I was there, you know, I traveled down to North Africa and traveled back back through Europe and just had a great time. Wow. So. When I came home, that was you know high on the list of things to do. So, you know, fin- finished college, moved back to Arizona, and then um, I was at, I started working for a, a bank actually in the mortgage industry. Oh, really? Yeah, and I they needed somebody who spoke Spanish, answered the phone in Spanish, and whatnot. So I this was, was like, about when, uh, like the height of the mortgage boom, <laughs> with like people refinancing, phone ringing off the hook. Right. So this is two thousand three. Okay. Um, yeah, I was doing doing really well, you know, financially for mm-hmm. you know a kid right out of college, basically. Um, but but pretty quickly realized, you know, I, I wasn't passionate about it, um, and that was pretty important to me. So, a friend of mine convinced me to go on a what we call a walkabout. So it was actually he was he was plugging me. He's like, "Come on, let's go travel. Let's go travel. Let's go down to travel in Mexico, Central America." And I was like, "Ah, hold on. You know, I'm having a really good month right now. I've never made it. You know, I had student loans I had to pay back and whatnot yeah. too. So, uh, so I saved up enough to to pay those off. And then there was one day walking into the bank. I had this big presentation I was giving to all these mortgage brokers, and I I had like these nice shoes on for this presentation. There was this big puddle in front of work, and I remember stopping and being like, "Oh, I should walk around so I don't get my shoes dirty." I was like, "What? Who, who have I become, man?" So I just like stomped through the puddle, went in, and then two days later, I was like, "You know, I don't think this is for me. I'm gonna have to give my notice." And they were they were blown away because I was I was doing so well. I was like making more money every month, and uh, and so yeah, that friend and I. Uh, packed up our backpacks and his sister dropped us off at the Mexican border and we we didn't have a return date didn't have a destination we just we caught the first bus from from Nogales uh, Mexico and then headed to the coast and then we we had enough money for one surfboard between the two of us so we bought a surfboard and one of us would watch the bags while the other surfed and then we just hitchhiked our way through Mexico like that wow <laughs> what what did you do for money while you were walking about like yeah so I, I had saved up you know so enough money I saved so you up had enough your savings to, for this yeah trip. so I paid off all of my loans and then saved up I don't know maybe like a thousand bucks or something like that in my pocket and uh <laughs> and it, we were just gonna return home when we ran out of money basically or or couldn't find a job or whatever so wow so how far did you get I made it down to Panama 
I, I actually found a gig at a surf camp. And so I, I made it down to Panama. It was supposed to be a one month job and the surf guides uh, that were supposed to replace me didn't show up or canceled. And so I worked another month and lo and behold, that turned into about a year <laughs> working at, on this little <laughs> island in the Pacific coast of Panama. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah, so you fun. didn't have, I mean, you'd paid off your debts. You'd focused, paid off your debts. Yeah. You were free just to, to check out the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You yeah, weren't leaving a girlfriend behind or, or, no, no, I think I was recently split up. So there was, we were, I think both of us were, so we were like crying on each other's <laughs> shoulder for the first couple of months. You right. know? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So what happened after that then? So do you go back to Arizona once Panama's done or how do you recover from like living in Panama for a year? Yeah. Life after that just must be a big, big transition for sure. Yeah. I was like fishing every day, you know, we'd catch fresh fish and we'd, we'd cut up the tuna on the boat there and like dip it in soy sauce and wasabi and have you know, fresh sushi on the boat as we're heading back to our tropical paradise. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, so I, that was the, essentially I was working in the tourism industry mm-hmm. and, um, through, through my travels, I, I saw, you know, a lot of, a lot of problems in those areas with, um, you know, ac- environmental issues and then access to fresh water is what I kind of identified as one of the major issues most cultures in the world are facing and if not today soon in the future including our own here in the united states and so i was just having a hard time i think uh living that life without actively doing something to to be a part of a solution for some of these big major issues that the the globe is facing a lot of these communities were facing that i was you know embedded with so i i decided to go back to school and get get a education in, in water science so that I could be a, a part of a solution. And so I would, some people would come to the surf camp, the island for a week at a time, and we didn't have any internet access or I think we had one phone, but it was always breaking. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would take a boat, drop the people off on Saturday morning so that they could catch a ride back to Panama City, go to the airport. And then the next crew would come in on Sunday afternoon. And so I would I would leave the boat docked and I would take a bus four hours into the nearest town with internet access and stay up all night at an internet cafe applying to colleges for hydrology <laughs> programs, like, and then come back, pick up the next crew, take them out to the surf camp. And so and I would be emailing people say, you know, I, I'll be able to email you next Saturday. So <laughs> I can only email once a week. Here. So I applied for colleges and then got accepted to a master's program in hydrology at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And that was a huge transition, transition trying to, you know, sit in the classroom after spending oh, all day, like six hours a day surfing, you know, a couple of hours a day, like lounging in a hammock, right. <laughs> eating fresh coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually pretty hard. Man, did you ever sit there going, <laughs> what have I done? Oh, yeah. Almost daily. I was like, what? <laughs> I, yeah, I was close to going back a couple times, but I, I stuck it out and, and saw it through. What, what, um, I mean, why was there anything that led you, like kept you on this goal of sticking to it or or is that sort of just your personality or, you know, it's such a contrast. Um, and while you're in it, it seems like, oh, there's all this information that you really don't care about or doesn't feel relevant or something. Um, but what did keep you there 
what kept you going? Yeah, it was a pretty strong pull that I was feeling, and it was kind of mounting when I was down there. It wasn't like a, a whim that I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I think I'll go pursue water. It was kind of every day it was growing and growing deeper. It was almost like started keeping me up at night. I, it sounds a bit hokey, but I, I sort of felt like heard voices of you know future generations like, what are yeah. you doing? Like, what are you doing to us right now? Are you why aren't you a part of a solution? You've already identified the problem. Like, so you, you have this obligation now to do something about it. So it was a pretty deep pull that I felt. Um, but then I'm, I'm also painting a probably a, a starker image. I, it was, I had a really good time sure. in Tucson. <laughs> so I just like, you know, you find things that I, my, the assistantship I had, the teacher's assistantship was with the outdoor venture program. So we were taking sea kayaking trips down to Mexico, <laughs> scuba trips, That's going awesome. whitewater rafting. So it wasn't all bad. <laughs> I, I imagine you're the type of person that can kind of find a, a good time wherever you are. Yeah. Yeah. I try anyway. Yeah. Um, so then what happened all right, after, after school? Then you, you graduate, you get your master's in yep. hydrology. Yep. So I had every intention of returning to like Central America, South America to do development work. Um, but it was really through that education. It was a, a two and a half year program that I was in. That's where I became pretty intimately aware of just how unsustainable our water use is here in the United States. So you know, especially in Arizona, we're just like here in Utah as well. I mean, we're we're using more groundwater that we than we have available. So it's just this like draining bathtub, if you want to picture it that way. So, you know, shoulder, that future generation is going to shoulder that burden one day. So mm-hmm. I decided to kind of stay here and, and work towards a, a better future, you know, in my home. So I started working for Arizona Department of Water Resources. That was my first job and actually pretty spectacular first project. I, I got to go up to the Hopi Indian Reservation and my job was to quantify their agricultural water use. And so just a, an amazing place. The Hopi Reservation is up in northeastern Arizona, mm-hmm. kind of surrounded by the Navajo Reservation and just an incredibly majestic part of the state, part of the country. And um, that was pretty fundamental, too. Um, did you did yeah. you live up there for a while? or Yeah, I'd go a for a or? few days at a time or, yeah, a week at a time at most. Um, but that was actually... So there's a phrase, don't worry, be Hopi. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And it has to do, you really have to dive in deep to the kind of spiritual beliefs of the Hopi uh, tribe. But essentially, they live in this really arid part of the country. And they've been there. It's one of the towns is the longest continually inhabited settlement in all of North America. So they've, it was from oh. dated to like 800 AD. So they've been in that area, like subsisting for a long time. <laughs> so, know? so. The white man didn't come and send them there. They they were already there. They were there, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they were there. They saw the Spanish come, and the Spanish couldn't subsist in such a harsh environment. They left, and then you know, Mormon pioneers came, and, and they had a hard time. They continued north, and, I mean, it's it's a harsh, rugged landscape. Wow. And they so they have these just amazing farming and agricultural practices that just are completely adapted to the land, but they're totally relying on, upon just the little rainfall and so they believe that the Kachinas, their ancestors, live in the clouds and they come in the form of rain to give life to current generations. And the, and the only way that you can call the Kachinas, the best way to call them to bring this life is, is through laughter and through dance. 
And really? so even in just the, the depth of drought and just the most trying circumstances, that's the most important time to be happy and, and f- find something to laugh about and just have a good spirit and good attitude. And so I, I think that was pretty epiphanal for my life. Mm. You know, you, you, can, you can find happiness no matter where you are. Right. That's, that's a, a wonderful philosophy. Yeah, I, I mean, the yeah. longer the longer I live, and I feel like I'm late to the game because I've heard this most of my life, but is 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 just that that happiness is an inside job. Yeah, and, absolutely. And uh, it's not those outside factors that are going to make it uh, for you. Yep. Once you once you totally. figure that out, that's that's a good start. Okay, so so what next then? You, you you're you're working with the water. Yeah. At Arizona. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then I, I did a bit more traveling. I, 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 I took a leave of absence, spent uh, another three months down in like Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, um, hitchhiked across the South American continent, went from Argen- all the way across Argentina and Chile. And, um, How good is your Spanish? Está uh, bien. Suficiente para hacer algo como si. All right. You can make it by then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then I came back and, and started working for the federal government, started doing um, some water planning for the BLM. And it, so I, I'm working for these big – what what really drew me to organizations like that is they have these longer-term visions. You know, the private mm-hmm. sector, you have, you know, short-term, you know, quarterly profits you have to be making every month and whatnot focuses your your daily basis is on more short-term goals and so i like the you know the public mission of long-term planning for you know futures to be honest but um it was it was also very frustrating at times to how to see how little impact we were having you know true impact when our daily decisions is is what is driving the the majority of of change and impact And, and so it was really more appealing the, the free market and entrepreneurship to to have a, a daily impact for um, for the environmental you know mission that I w- was on as far as you know ensuring a, a water sustainable future. So, so, so where? Yeah. When did crickets yeah. show up? <laughs> yeah. Randomly, <laughs> <laughs> I I just always into continual education. So I on the way to work. It was I was I was working for a company, an environmental consultant here in Utah. I had switched to the private sector, um, and I was listening to a TED talk. I was I listened to like TED talks or, or podcasts every day on the way to work on the bus. And this TED talk was from a Dutch professor about eating insects, and he talked about all the environmental benefits and health benefits, and basically stated the only reason we don't is for cultural reasons. And so I thought, you know here's a, a potential game changer as far as our food supply and, and water consumption. So, I, you know, I crunched the numbers from a water perspective and, and did in fact see that they were extremely more water efficient than what we're currently eating. And the only reason we don't is for cultural reasons. And I was like, oh man, we can get over that. <laughs> that That's a ridiculous reason not to be doing something so intelligent and something right. so uh, beneficial and, and literally game changing to to be able to help out our, our children and grandchildren. Um, absolutely. So then, so you have this idea, all right, the only problem is culture. And then 
what did you what did you do? Did you look for ideas to start? It's like was it okay? How do we make it easier for people to want to eat crickets or you know bugs or whatever insects? Did you think I should start a company where we sell uh, insects as food and I'll use marketing to kind of help change the culture or or what? What were those next ideas? Yeah, um, I mean, very first was experiment with my with yourself self. Yeah, uh-huh. walk, you know, walk the walk before you start talking the talk, and so just that's kind of what led me down realize um, education on the current. Uh, industry around growing insects. And so I, I kind of got a good knowledge of it. I started raising myself just to understand how they how they grow, what they eat. You um, did, so you got did, some live yeah. cricket. Did you start with crickets? Was it, or started were there with other crickets. bugs? Yeah, Beatles? I started with crickets. I went to like Craigslist Free and there's all these aquariums on Craigslist Free. <laughs> so I went and picked one up off of somebody's curb and then you know, threw some grass in it and whatnot and ordered a thousand live crickets on the internet and they show up and I started raising them. Did those just them. show up in the mail? How do you ship oh my gosh, a cricket? Yeah, they did. And it was the most like, it was the most sour face I've ever seen on a FedEx driver. He shoved <laughs> this box in. It was, it was kind of like crushed a little bit. So I think the crickets may have been like getting out in his truck and he was not happy about it. <laughs> He's going to hear them for days. I know, I know. I'm a poor guy. So yeah, so are I, crickets noisy when you have a bunch of them? Yeah, do but they they but they all chirp in unison, so it's 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 noisy, but it's like noisy like a choir. You know, it's wow. actually kind of melodic That's... and yeah, it can be fairly soothing too. Especially, oh, I, so I've toured yeah. several of these farms now that they grow them in mass. You know, they'll have forty million crickets at any time, and it's uh, it's pretty cool actually walking through and they're all chirping. Wow, you know, there's only a few noisy. of them that chirp, yeah. Also, they don't all chirp at once. It's well, it's it's just the males and the mature males, and so it's only a, you know a certain mm. percentage of the population that that's at that stage. And they're yeah, they so they rub their wings together. Is that that's right? The, yeah, I see. You you wouldn't have very much chirping here in Utah. I don't think there's very many mature males. <laughs> <laughs> just speaking for myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, Same here. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So, you're looking. You're eating crickets. You're getting into this kind of learning. You're still working your job in the private yep. sector. Yeah, yeah. Um, when does it occur to you to turn this into a bar, like a, a you know, a, a, yeah, I guess an energy yeah. type bar? Yeah, I decided that this was really something that, that should be spread. This is an idea that, that needs to take root. Um, and so that's what led me to decide to start a company. I thought that would be the best vehicle. I was like, oh, you know, I could write a book about this or I could you know, talk about this, but I think the the largest impact I could have is start a company and and have that experience that the consumer can have, not just hearing about it, but give them an outlet to to try and then to to make a change in their own daily life to something more sustainable. So um, looked at other food industries that had that same hurdle. We had the cultural sushi was the most obvious parallel. And so we kind of modeled it after their introduction with the development <laughs> of the California roll. It's true. Right. Yeah, I know. Eating a raw fish yeah, it seems right? weird. It totally, yeah. And the first time somebody presented with me, I'm like, gross. Yeah, why would I ever do that? Uh, it's now my favorite food. Yeah. So the California roll, I've I've heard yeah. you tell the story, yeah, but, yeah. but um, for those that haven't, the California roll was intentionally then introduced. Correct for two Americans. Yeah, the the sushi industry just was failing, 
uh, for probably about five years. And then it was somebody that really strategically gave Americans a, a gentle baby step to the idea. <laughs> the rice on the outside. The rice on the outside. Some avocado. Avocado, yeah. Huh. Yeah, so that's what we did. We, we eliminated that visual component by milling it down to a powder mm-hmm. um, and then put it in a very familiar package in the form of an energy bar. How did you start milling your first when you with first a coffee started. grinder. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's now, it's it's funny. It's becoming this an industry now. There's several companies um, in the U.S. and Canada and Thailand making cricket flour. But the very first batch was made on our little coffee grinder. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. And then we graduated from a coffee grinder to a blend tech. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. It will blend then. It will. I know. we we got to reach out to those guys. <laughs> yeah, you should. Just pour some crickets <laughs> yeah, in totally. there. Um, how do you dry a cricket? I mean, I it, hate to ask this. No, but... it's fine. Uh, so, I mean, Native Americans here in Utah used to do it, and they, all they would do is just dry them in the sun. So how are they dead? Do they die first? Yes. Do they die naturally? So we would freeze them. Yeah, okay. we freeze them. So actually one of the practices used by Native Americans in this area, would they would dig this trench about you know, a foot or two deep, this long trench, maybe half a mile long, a couple feet wide. And then they would circle out for you know, a, squ- a square mile or, or even larger and in a, in a big field. And then they would take willows and kind of beat the ground, beat the grass in this big circle and then kind of slowly work their way into the center where this trench was, and driving all these crickets and grasshoppers and the trench they would have lined with with straw and and lit it on fire, kind of create embers and ash, and uh, basically kind of like a barbecue. And so they would drive all these crickets and grasshoppers into this onto these coals, and they would kind of cook them that way. Wow. And then, uh, or they would would just dry them in the sun. So mm-hmm. another group, go shoots, would collect them out of the Great Salt Lake after a big storm. Uh, the high water line would be just lined with crickets and grasshoppers that had been swarming. And so these are the pre-salted yeah, right, insects exactly. drying in the sun. And actually, there's some anthropologists at the University of Utah that uh, experienced it and, and calculated that it was probably the most efficient form of protein gathering that any uh, human group has ever experienced in, in, in the form of human calories spent protein gain because they saw one event where it was nine inches deep by six feet wide for miles, Whoa. these crickets and grasshoppers for miles, six, nine inches deep by six feet wide. So it's just, they were just getting baskets and baskets full of these things. And then they would storm in the caves along the west side of the Great Salt Lake. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It, um, it's like the buffet has just been provided. I know, right? So they, they gave up uh, hunting mammals entirely because they'd have a, one event like that, and they'd have their protein source all winter long. Wow. And just store it in these caves. Once and, it's yeah. dried, do, do you, I mean, is it good and ready to eat? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, dry it out. That's, I mean, that's a form of food preservation. It's just yeah. eliminate the water moisture. And so so we do all that just in the in the form of convection ovens. <laughs> Low so, heat, just so dry them out. You'd, you'd freeze them first. Yeah, freeze them, and rinse then them. you'd dry them. Spread them the out on cookie oven. sheets, put them in a convection oven, low then heat. Toss them in the blend tech. Just toss them in the blend tech. <laughs> put them through a sieve to make sure we got all the big pieces out. I see. We gradu- And then we graduated from blend tech to a stone mill. Okay. And now, so, so this was about when? 2012. 12. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And, um, and you're making this 
uh, with some friends or something. Yep. Yeah, just friends here in, in Utah. I, I uh, train with the Capoeira group here. It's a Brazilian martial mm-hmm. art, and uh, it's a real strong community. And so a lot of them would come, you know, after after workout, we'd go to the kitchen, and, you know, 10 of us would be making these bars or milling crickets. Or, you know, just, we'd be, like, singing or whatever. So it was fun. Now, and, at this point, yeah. were you doing it to eventually start a company, or were you doing it because, hey, this is this is a cool way to get protein and I'm going to no, know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I did everything at my house first, just for, it's a cool way to get protein and then, uh, decided to start a business and, and actually before deciding to start a business was deciding to do a Kickstarter campaign to do it, like market validation testing essentially. Right. And so let's create a product. Let's create a company first, uh, start, create the product, Launch it on Kickstarter, see if it works. You know, pour, pour you know, hearts and soul and time into this project. <laughs> right. Make sure it's successful. So how long? Yeah. How long? I mean, that's a great way to validate yeah, an totally. idea, especially yeah. in 2012. Yeah. Um, how? T- talk a little bit about that Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. Um, you know, who helped you with the video? How long did all the prep take? How did you get attention to the campaign? Yeah, so I think we spent a total of about a hundred dollars on our Kickstarter campaign. Really? Yeah, and that was like buying a, buying a, some whiskey and some beer for our video intern. <laughs> <laughs> he was a student at the U. Right. That was so we just like had to add it on Craigslist for an intern, mm-hmm. unpaid internship to do this three minute video for us. And so because none of us had any video experience or any tools, um, so that was our our videographer. This is great guy, and then he turned on. He got several projects after that, so we, we kind of he he grew with us essentially. So yeah. it was a really fun relationship. Um, but uh, we we wanted to have video footage of people actually consuming the product, so we put a date on the calendar. We signed up for an event. It was the 28th annual International Bug Festival in Los Angeles. Their Natural History Museum was having. There was going to be like 15,000 people coming to this event, so we we shelled out the 200 bucks for a table at this event. And we said, we're going to sell our, our cricket bars there. And I think it was like five months out when we confirmed that. And then it was like, okay, we have a date on the calendar. We need to come up with the product. We need to develop a recipe. We need to figure out a nutritional panel. We need to figure out packaging. We need to figure it all out in these next five months because Commit we have first, a deadline. then figure totally. it out. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. That was, that was a, a great learning experience because if, if you do it in reverse, you like figure it out and then put a date when it's ready, that date will never come. At least for me yeah no i agree <laughs> yeah. i've seen that a thousand times just commit because you sometimes you'll spend the same amount of time if it's like two weeks out or if it's uh, six months out you may you may end up spending the same quantity of time it's just more consolidated more compact right yeah so that's what we did we put a date on the calendar we we drove out the we drove our van out to la for this event we were like putting the stickers the labels on the bars on the drive out there because we <laughs> just we had them printed the day before we left and so it was just like you know screeching into the finish line but we got video footage of people trying it people interacting with it phenomenal education on how to market it because we're you know we're we had this huge backstory of why we're doing this mm-hmm. but you know people's eyes glaze over after the first five seconds of presenting information to right them. So yeah it's just like by the end of the event it was whittled down like eat crickets save the world <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> eat crickets they're healthy <laughs> you know after this long life like 
92% of freshwater resources globally are going to agriculture, and majority of that is inefficiently used for livestock production. So we're trying to create this alternative source. <laughs> like, well, I don't want to hear all that. Just no. like <laughs> people don't care about the world as much as they think they do. They yeah. they just want something that tastes good and is good for them. Yeah. And then it has this added benefit. Yeah, totally. Of totally. saving the world. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. So you did it. How? And then. All right, you had a video, you launched Kickstarter. Yep. Yeah, so then I, it was, you know, we researched successful projects on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. It was constantly what we do. Who else has done this and done it successfully? So we did that with, you know, the sushi model, and then we did it with Kickstarter. We looked at food projects on Kickstarter, and so we just mimicked what what's successful. And um, so we created our um, the incentives for the program based on you know they're it's basically sell your product at a discount is what seemed to be the most successful so we did that you know and, uh, we i just I, I would come home from work you know come home like 5 6 p.m from work and i would just like dive into the pr of uh, like we didn't have a I, I wrote a press release and i just like research i created this database of all media i could and found their email addresses and would send them emails and uh, i'd send a personal email to basically everyone that's ever entered my inbox in gmail <laughs> so <laughs> just announcing the project and here it is and facebook just my own community and and all of my friends would, would reach out to their own communities we didn't have any you know press contacts or anything right. like that so, so you just, just reached out to people you everyone. knew everyone yeah and lo and behold with that i mean it was a lot of time spent on it but lo and behold if you bring traffic to a kickstarter page they'll start highlighting you so we were like top three kickstarter campaigns in utah for a while on that page and so if you it's like anything in in life success sort of begets success Mm -hmm. and so if you if you make it successful then they make it even more successful and so then we started getting traffic from the kickstarter page just people that had gone onto the page found our site that way but you I have see. to create that. I mean, they don't. There's nothing that's handed to you. They'll they'll reward your traffic exactly. with more traffic. Exactly. But yeah. you have to get Correct. that first kernel. Correct. Yeah. And you launched the the Kickstarter campaign before you started reaching out to everybody. Is that right, or did you let people know it was coming? Uh, you know, so I I picked people's brains that had done it. I I tapped into you know the knowledge base that's here in our community for sure. And so one good piece of advice somebody gave me was create a database based on media type. And so, you know, for printed media, you have to reach out a little further in advance. And so, you know, if, if you want a newspaper story, you, you should reach out three weeks in advance. And so I did that for all the newsprint and like magazines is even further. It's like months in advance. And then, you know, podcasts and things are a little more immediate. So a couple of days in advance. And then, um, yeah, and then like social media, it's like instantaneous. Mm-hmm. You can reach out as it's happening. Um, we did a really short project. We only did 16 days. So in hindsight, I would make it much longer mm-hmm. so that you can reach out once it's started. And then people have that lag time where they can put it. Because we, we got several articles on it like three, four days after our project closed. Right. And so we just didn't. And people are much more likely to write about something or talk about something if it's, if it's actually happening. Yeah. You know, if you tell somebody you have an idea, it's not really that. People don't really they don't care that much. Yeah. They, well, want, I mean, they want to see the action. Yeah. And I get it cuz we have people emailing us all the time with ideas. You know, <laughs> every day we get an email inquiry to our website saying, "Hey, I have this idea, I have this idea." And we can't respond to all of them. Right. And so just the ones that are kind of somebody's already demonstrated that they put action behind their words. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to respond to. And so that's what I, 
you know, was a learning experience for us. So have that Kickstarter page going, give it enough lag time in your project to be able to reach out to people once you do start it. Awesome. Yeah. And you've, you funded, you made funded, it, yeah. then you started. Uh, that, that allowed you to... Buy a bunch of ingredients, okay. essentially. Yeah, and, a, and we bought that stone mill. Okay. It funded the stone mill um, and just a big batch of ingredients. And, and you're still working full-time? Working full-time, A yeah. separate job? A separate job. Okay. Yep. Um, and we, we just went to the kind of lowest cost. We started selling them online, and we started selling them at farmer's markets and very, very much bootstrapped. You sell... So 100 bars, and that pays for ingredients for 120 bars. Right. And we go back to the kitchen, make 120, sell those, and make 150 bars. <laughs> so that's that's how we grew. And then, um, what what ne- I mean, what next? Do you then get into stores? Do you seek outside investment? At what time did Shark Tank come up? Yeah, that was a, that was down the road. That was two years down the road. Um, so you'd already been in business for two years when when you did Shark Tank. Well. I, uh, a year and a half uh, for when we filmed, and then two years when it aired. I see. It, it filmed about six months prior to air day. Um, yeah, we di- we didn't have any investment. Uh, we we put our own money in. We put a just, but I mean, literally a couple thousand dollars, which is all I had to put in. Wow. It turns out you don't make make much money as a surf guide. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Yeah, the guys, the owner of the camp would constantly tell us like if we're like, if we were saying you know we need some money I can't even afford a surfboard. He's like I pay you in waves, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Which it's he hard did. to buy other <laughs> yeah. objects with waves. Yeah, totally. So anyway, pretty minimal investment on our own, and um, it was also an industry that we're very contrary to business theory we're launching a product that there's no consumer demand for right yeah. and the reason we're doing that is we have an idea that we're trying to spread we're, mm-hmm. i wasn't trying to make a bunch of money like rapidly that was impossible with the product in the industry that we were trying to start and so there was an element of patience that was just critical to what we were doing and so that slow organic growth was actually pretty a good pace for the overall project to kind of take root and the, the idea to start being planted into the minds of, of Americans. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what happened. So people would read about us and then other companies would start little startups and they'd reach out to us and we'd be like, we'd tell them everything we knew. Like, yeah, absolutely join us. Like, here's how you do it. Here's where you get crickets from. Like, Oh, awesome. Yeah. So it was very much trying to build an industry, not, not necessarily just a single company. And then, you know, their marketing efforts help us and our marketing efforts help them. All right. The rising tides lift all boats. Totally. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and at what point were you able to quit your day job? Uh, Shark Tank. Oh, really? It wasn't yeah. until that. Yeah, it wasn't until that. So it was two years in. Were you in yeah. stores? Had Like, yeah, when so did we you were... start approaching stores? Pretty much immediately, mm-hmm. um, especially started approaching anyone that would talk to me. Like, <laughs> hey, you know, I, I have this product. I don't know if it's ready for your store, but can you tell me what it needs to be ready? Awesome. And so they're saying, you know how many UPC codes on these things? Like, look at every product in this store as a UPC <laughs> code. It's like, oh, yeah, of course. And so, yeah, it's when you start out that small, you can make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And they're not right. detrimental to the company. <laughs> they're, you know, they suck. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work. Right. And, and we had some bars go moldy because we don't put any preservatives in. And so oh, right. that would have been a much bigger deal if we had had, you know, 50,000 bars out there on the shelves, mm-hmm. but we had 50. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, just your distribution model is 
like drive the van over yeah, and drive the van exactly yeah <laughs> wow yeah, yeah so uh, it was all kind of by design that slow mm-hmm. growth in in part i mean we didn't have the resources necessary to do it right. huge but we also we also were reached out to some by some of the larger companies reach out to us saying, hey, we're really excited about this. We want to support you. And we told them we're not ready. You know, some oh, wow. of, some larger chains yeah. that want to bring your product in. It's like, yeah, you know, I don't, I, we know that this is like, we're going to get one shot. Mm-hmm. And there's nobody right now in right in line behind us to take that spot if we don't go in. So huh. we're going to take our time with this a little bit. And then we've, we've gone into those. And it's been, I think we've been a lot more successful than we would have been if we had jumped at that opportunity six months prior. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, so it's a balance of, of patience and like seizing opportunity constantly. <laughs> and really like trusting, right, your your gut, because I think a lot of people would say, oh, big chain, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes to get in there. Um, but to have that awareness that you're not ready yet and you've got one shot, that's, that's not easy for a lot of people. No, it's not, especially when Bill's you don't or like you're scraping by to pay bills you know yeah. we have a monthly rent at our kitchen that we have to make and so yeah, right because so, you needed a commercial kitchen yep right yeah. um and and so how how did the shark tank thing happen do you apply I, yeah just i'm not a good example of how to do it because <laughs> we just dumb luck is what really helped us i sent an email to the website and somebody there liked it and they just rushed us through the process. They were like, this is great. Can you get us a, a five-minute video by this weekend? So we brought that same video intern. We're like, we need a five-minute video in two days. We're like, we don't have any money to pay you. But if we get on Shark Tank, we'll give you a 1000 bucks. Like, awesome. Just totally gamble. He's like, yeah, right. let's do it. So we spent the weekend filming this five-minute video. And it worked out for him. Wow. <laughs> and us. You know, yeah. So. I mean, you, you're great on Shark Tank. How... Behind the scenes, and, I, and you probably can't talk too much about that. Um, does is Shark Tank a a good deal, regardless of whether or not you know you get the deal? Did things really change after that? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Guess. It's a yeah. It's a no brainer as far as brand exposure. I mean, I, I forget what it was. I, I looked it up one time. It was like seventy five thousand dollars to get a thirty second paid ad in that time slot. In wow. in. Like for example, our segment was ten minutes long, so right. there's no way a company of our size could ever pay for that type of advertising. Mm-hmm. And, but that being said, they're pretty critical of anyone that goes in just for that, and they really try and weed people out that are just trying to get their brand out there. And, and you're going to piss off the investors, and so that wasn't right. really, you know, we we didn't have any money, and so it was a good time for us to take on money. But it, but that being said, we stepped in there with, uh, we were I was in a good spot. Um, we didn't need it necessarily. And that's the, I mean, that's the best time to ask for money is when you yeah. don't need it. Right. Um, you know, we were successful, we were growing every month. And so how that's did you when, come up with your valuation? I mean, just throw a dart at the wall. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's not true. We, we looked at other, just basically did market research. Thankfully my co-founder has a lot more experience in, in the business world and VC world than I do. And so he put together some, some tables with, uh, some acquisitions of other food companies and, you know, what their valuation was based on, you know, their growth rate and their sales and their profitability. So we had a pretty good idea. Um, and we were growing so fast that we were weighing heavily on that kind of component of the valuation. So yeah, it, yeah, if, if, 
it's kind of, it, there's a lot of focus on Shark Tank of valuation, but mm -hmm. if you're speaking with investors and you're really haggling over valuation, they're wasting your time. That's not really that big of a deal. Right. It, it's more about your growth potential, the team, like, can you act on this? Because they're looking for 10, 20 times, you know, growth. And so whether you're worth 2 million or 3 million really doesn't make a difference one bit. So right. Anyone that's really haggling you over that is wasting your time. How's it been to work with Mark Cuban? Great, yeah phenomenally helpful i mean super sharp guy just really um yeah brings a lot to the table that we didn't really have and he's got a full-time staff that they're all just phenomenal assets i mean there's graphic design you know business development accounting services and so oh wow yeah we've tapped that for sure and they've really helped us out quite a bit so yeah very grateful for that for mark and his t whole team and so so since then then you've been able to now make this a full-time yeah. for yourself yeah i mean it has its peaks and valleys i think the most most helpful thing to make it full-time is to l learn how to be happy with living in poverty <laughs> <laughs> you know? right. otherwise you're gonna get burned out if you're like I, yeah if you're living on a big paycheck and you're looking at a startup um to to support that lifestyle mm -hmm. it's gonna be rough man you're gonna be stressed out you're gonna be making promises to investors that you're gonna have to keep to to afford that lifestyle, and so, yeah, I have a very low cost of living and you know pretty happy lifestyle, and so that's that's been so helpful, you know, to to be able to exercise that patience that yeah. you were talking about earlier, right? Because um, I I didn't have you know this massive debt over my head or um, this you know boat payments, or yeah, right? Exactly, <laughs> pay cash for that two thousand and two van. <laughs> So now you have a surfboard, a van, yeah, exactly. and a lot of cricket bars. I know. Actually, I had a conversation with a lawyer about um, you know, protecting our assets and whatnot. And, and he's like, you know, I don't think they're going to come after you for your surfboard. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I really don't mean to give you any offense here, but you don't really have a lot that anyone would want to come after. They'd spend a lot more money on legal fees than <laughs> right. what they would get from What them. a freeing feeling, the whole, your stuff owns you. Yeah, totally, yeah. So, yeah, so my, my girlfriend and I, before, I guess I left out a, a piece of the chapter, but we spent a year traveling around in the van. Um, we, we pulled out the seats. We kind of bought the van for that purpose. We pulled out the seats, built a bed, built a little kitchen, uh, had a little rack on top. So we took two kayaks, two surfboards, two mountain bikes, and our dog and traveled for pretty close to a year in that van. Um, wow, like passing out bars? No, no, this is before Chipool. Living. Oh, before yeah, Chipool. Yeah, this is before Chipool. Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. You know, Sorry, I, I so, that no, no, that, it's, it's great because <laughs> these are the stories that we need in this podcast, right? Yeah. Like live life now. Yeah. Um, and, and you're the perfect model for it because you've, you've found... You know, the sense of vocation is more than just a job or career, right? It's that sense of mission, that sense of, of your, you know, part of fulfilling life's purpose and, uh, and, and making a living doing that. And, um, and I, I think it's, it's a really great story of, of look, we're, we're taking this time, you know, to experience this and yeah. we're going to change the world this way. And, um, uh, I, th I think that's really great. W and another, a couple quick questions, and sure. then, then I'll let you go. Um, how did your co-founder? Were you friends before Chapul, or did you go out and find 
Yeah, I was very good friends with him. Yeah, one of my best friends. Uh, so we were roommates in college. We went okay. to Claremont McKenna College in Southern California. And then we also spent one of those semesters of the year I was in Spain. We spent together. He was also in Spain. We traveled together. And that's I, travel partners are very difficult to find, like good travel mm-hmm. companions. Some of my best friends, you know, here I, I probably wouldn't travel with. <laughs> but he and I traveled really well, and that I think was a great indicator that we could run a business together. Right. Um, we were both like flexible, you know, can adapt to constantly changing environments, yet are motivated to to pursue a path, not just you know like let right. things happen to you, but like actively do things, but be open enough to constantly change your plan. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that actively pursue things. Yeah. So before you change. before you start a business with somebody, go on a little road trip with them or something. Right. A business <laughs> is a journey. Totally. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you can't survive the trip with them, you're not going to like being in business with them. Exactly. Ah, yeah. that's great. That's great. Um, any any other words of of wisdom or advice for somebody that's thinking of starting a company, or they think they need to go all in right now, or go find an investor? Or, uh, um there's there's no right way of doing things the only wrong way of doing things is uh to do nothing so just actively do something just go for it It, it, inaction is the only way to fail well that's not true (laughs) (laughs) but that's the like analysis paralysis is all too common right. just I, I mean when, when we were starting out i was reading accounting for dummies i was just reading everything i could and, and somebody was like you are more prepared than any of my friends i felt so underprepared you know i was <laughs> like i don't know anything about this but you just go for it and you learn it on the fly and so throw that date on the calendar and, and backfill everything you need to do to get ready for that so that's awesome. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, fun. Where, where can people find you then on social media and other yeah, places? Uh, our website is chapool.com, C-H-A-P-U-L, and then Chapool Revolution on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome. I'll have the links in the podcast right up. Thanks again, Pat Crowley, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Dallas. It was Bye. great meeting you. <laughs>